0: I apologize for taking your time. Thank you so much in advance for your support. Enjoy this episode. You are listening to Rabbi Arya Woolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Thinking Talmudist podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Thinking Talmudist lunch and learn and podcast. Thank you, Ed, for doing such a magnificent job with today's lunch. Y'all are all welcome to the Torch Center to join us here live for Torah. And for those of you who don't know, Ed travels 35 each way, 70 miles to every class. Is that amazing? The reward that one gets for traveling every single inch that you travel. I'm telling you, Ed, you, the reward for it is unimaginable. I envy your reward for coming to these classes. It really is incredible. It comes all the way from the woodlands. All the way from the woodlands, come to the class. It's really amazing. All right, last week, we discussed the beautiful Talmud in Tractate Sota, 11a that discusses the verses in the portions dealing with the Exodus and elaborates, sharing many teachings of the sages on what really transpired behind the scenes. So we're going to continue... The next verse states, But as much as they would afflict the Jews, so would they increase and so it would spread out. Referring to the Jewish people. And we have to understand that as a general principle, we see this constantly. Hashem is in control of the world. Hashem knows exactly where we are, what we are, what our needs are. Now, it's a good thing to communicate. I'll just share with you a quick story, a quick, quick story. My daughter, last night, she had a a friend who came in from New York, and I'll I'll tell you two stories, okay, because I'm already talking about her friend coming from New York. So I took her to the airport to pick up her friend. She's very, very excited, and they're talking, oh, you're out of the plane? Are you my luggage already? And they're really very excited. So my daughter says, if you don't mind, can you just take a video of us, like, greeting each other? You know, there's such excitement. I said, sure, no problem. So we get there, and I'm like the first row of cars as people come out of the airport with their luggage. And we already passed the front door, so I'm behind it. And I pull out my camera, and I see her friend there. I say, okay, your friend is there. You can go out and go greet her. And I turn on the video camera, and I'm videoing backwards, you know, behind me to to them. And the excitement and the energy. The love, the passion they have for one another was just so incredible. And she runs and embraces her friend, and they can't believe it, and they're hugging each other, and they're screeching, and they're, you know, it's like just, it's incredible. Okay, eventually I turn off the video, and I open up my car door, and there's this Asian gentleman sitting on a bench right over there as I open my door, smoking a cigar, has a nice expensive briefcase, he's wearing a tie and a vest, you know, he looks like he's there for business. He's and he sees the whole scene. He sees the whole thing going on. And he looks at me and he looks at my daughter. He says, such a beautiful human being. Only the Jews have such happiness. Only the Jews invest in family. This is amazing. And it was it was amazing to see, and everyone stopped. By the way, people are walking out, and everyone just stopped and watched this commotion of these two friends who haven't seen each other in about you know six months since camp, and are just like it was just a an incredible sight. Either way, now this friend is at the house; she's staying with us for Shabbos, and they want to go into the hot tub by our pool, and it's a little chilly outside. She want they wanted me to heat it up. So, I go outside and sometimes my, my heater works and sometimes it doesn't. It's very moody. So, sometimes it works and it works perfectly, and sometimes it just doesn't want to turn on, it just doesn't want to ignite. So, I tried and I tried and I tried and it's not working. I tried to reboot it, not working. So, I go to my daughter inside and I say, I'm sorry, I don't know how to tell you this, but it is not working. I've tried everything. It worked earlier this week, it's not working. I said, but there's one thing that can change it. Prayer. I said, Hashem loves your prayers. You know how much Hashem has answered you and keeps on answering you for your prayers. I said, stop for a second and pray. She says, oh, but I I prayed already multiple times today. You know, the morning prayer, the afternoon prayer. I said, yeah, but speak from your heart and ask Hashem if you want to use the hot tub that this heater should get working. So she says, okay. She closes her eyes and with deep concentration, she talks to Hashem. She says, you know how much I appreciate. I really wanted my friend to come here and you, you did this for me. And I thank you so much, Hashem. We just want to go into the hot tub. If you don't mind, you know, get this heater to work. And sure enough, I walk outside a minute later and the, the heater is on. It's working. So it like Hashem answers our prayers. Hashem knows what we need. He just wants us to communicate. In last week's Torah portion, Parsha Shmos, it says, the more the Egyptians afflicted the Jewish people, the more they grew, the more they got strengthened. Ken <speaking in Hebrew> The stronger they got, the more plentiful they got. That is the blessing that Hashem. So the Gemara questions the tense of the verbs. Ken Rabu, the Partsu Mi It says it in a term of like, so they will increase and so they will spread out. What's about right now? It should be, so they increased now and so they spread out now. It should be now. The Gemara answers on Rish Lakish. Rish Lakish says, Ruach HaKodesh Mivas Rason. The Divine Spirit informed them, Ken So it will increase and so it will spread out. Meaning... The divine spirit was informing Israel of the good news and telling the Egyptians that their plan against the Israelites would not work because the Jews would certainly increase in number despite the Egyptians' efforts. As much as we try to avert God's plan, it's not going to help. We can try with all of our might that something, you know, if Hashem decides that someone will succeed in business, there will be no barriers for that success. Education won't be a barrier. Their personality won't be a barrier. Their skills won't be a barrier. And if Hashem decides that they won't have a livelihood, education won't help. Skills won't help. Personality won't help meaning there's nothing that can challenge the Almighty's decree. When the Almighty says the Jewish people will be blessed, you can try day and night with all the power in your, in your capability, and it won't change it. You cannot fight God. And God teaches us this lesson here in last week's Torah portion, in Parsha Shmos, he teaches us the importance of recognizing his incredible strength. Is limitless strength. The Gemara now continues. The verse continues, "Va'yakutsu mipnei Yisrael," and they were disgusted because of the children of Israel. It teaches that the Jews were like thorns, kotsim, in the eyes of the Egyptians. There is sometimes someone can bother you, and it's like a thorn in your eyes. It's like everything you see of them is just awful and terrible. And you're just like you're disgusted by them. That's what the Jews were to the Egyptians. You know why? Sages tell us that everything you see is a reflection of yourself. If you look at something positively, it'll be positive. you look at something negatively, it'll be negative. The way you, your attitude towards something is the way it will reflect back to you. Are sages teach us that the Egyptians had a negative eye against the Jews and therefore everything they saw about the Jews was negative imagine someone would just sit there in the morning and say wow these Jews are amazing I mean look at them we're trying to kill them they don't go away they just we try to hit them they have more children they more babies you know it's like everything we try to do shouldn't someone just one day just like think for a second open up their eyes and see the reality is is different than what I But look at the world today. Look at the world today. Don't you think the nations of the world should realize, don't mess with the Jews, it never worked? It literally never worked in the history. It never worked that someone started with the Jews and succeeded and prospered. People don't look like that because if people have a negative perspective, that negative perspective prevails. That works for us as well, by the way. We learned this when we talked about judging people favorably. If you look positively at other people, you have a positive outlook. You'll see everything positive in them. How do you do that? By being positive yourself. Jay, okay, we'll take you as an example. You'll be our our model here today. Do you do things that are bad to other people? Do you do things that are bad? Do you intentionally go out and like, I want to just hurt somebody today? Generally not. You seem like too nice of a guy to do that, right? Do you go out and say, you know what, I want to, I want to crash into someone's car today? No. So now, do you think that maybe other people have the same sentiment that you have? They just want to be good people, pay their taxes, do you know, be be a gentleman, you know, be a nice guy. That's what most people want to do. And because you feel that way about yourself, hopefully, we'll be able to see that in other people. Well, we have to see, you know what, they, they really don't mean, they, they're just having a tough day. And recognizing that I wouldn't do that, probably they wouldn't either. And if we're able to see ourselves in other people, I'll give you another example, we talked about this recently when we talked about Lashon Hara, the way to change Lashon, someone tells you, ooh, doctor, do you know about so-and-so? Ooh, don't even ask, don't even ask really bad stuff, he's, he's going to go to prison. I'm telling you, it's like, oh, what happened, right? Let's hear, let's hear the story. Chavetz Chaim tells us, the way to avoid listening and accepting Lashon Hara is to imagine that the person they're talking about is someone that you love. Think of it, maybe it's your father, maybe it's your mother, maybe it's your brother, your sister, your child. Someone says something disparaging about our child. Excuse me, who do you think you're talking about? Someone calls your child dumb, right? Oh, he's a dummy. Excuse me? Right? We'd we'd, we'd come to the defense of our child. Why? Because we love our child. When someone talks negatively about another person, imagine they're talking about someone you love. What lengths would you go to defend them? The same thing you should do for someone else, for a total stranger. Go out of your way to defend other people. Go out of your way to see the positive in other people. A little bit out of our topic here, but let's continue. What does the next verse teach us? The next verse states, "Va'yavidu is The Egyptians enslaved the children of Israel, and now we turn to 11b in tractate Sota. Bifarach. What's bifarach? Farach with hard, backbreaking work. The Gemara presents two explanations to the last word. Rabbi Elazar. Omar, Rebbe Azar says, it is a contraction alluding to the fact that the enslavement began rah, with a soft mouth. What does that mean? Our commentaries explain that is, Pharaoh began the enslavement by inducing them with encouraging words and good pay to work for him until he had acclimated them to the work. So the first thing he says, guys, come, I'm going to pay you top salary. Come get to work! Come on, build a building. You got this. You can do it. Build a build me a pyramid. And what happens? They get to work. They're doing well. And like, where's our money? You promised us. He says, No, no, no. You're not getting any money. Build me another pyramid. Build me another building. Build me another city. And by the way, the cities weren't cities that ended up being beautiful and you know those big skyscrapers big big buildings no 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 they were built in quicksand imagine you have free labor for 210 years you can build the greatest empire in the world times 100 210 years of free labor you get them to do unbelievable work so how did these how did it all start it all started with Perach Bifarech means perach with a soft word. Gentle. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani said that it should be taken literally, meaning B'fricha, with crushing labor. Commentaries explain strenuous physical work that breaks down the body. Reb Shmuel Bar follows the literal meaning of ferach, which is to break. Thus, in his view, this verse refers to the demanding physical labor that the Israelites performed. Now, I don't know about you, but most Jews I know, you know, they say if you're Jewish, you have more likelihood of owning a football team than playing on a football team. Right? That's not the kind of work Jews do. Jews don't run after footballs. That's not what they do. Jews own football teams. I think more than half the football teams are owned by Jews. But, right, Kraft is a Jew. The guy from the Redskins is a Jew. You know, all of these, all of these teams are owned by Jews, Jewish people. There are certain types of labors that are Jewish-like and there are certain types of labors that are not. Right? We're not gifted so much with laying bricks. We're gifted with using our minds. And when you take people... Who are gifted with their mind, the people of the book, and you make them do the back breaking work of the bricks, something doesn't doesn't function right. And what it did more than just break their backs physically, it despirited them. They want to be learning. They want to be educating. They want to use their minds. And instead you're giving them work, which is important work. But work that's not Inspiring to them. That's also breaking their spirit. The next verse states, And they embittered their lives with hard labor, with mortar and with bricks, and with every labor of the field. The Gemara explains Amarava, Initially, the Egyptians embittered their lives with mortar and bricks. And at the end, and with every labor of the field, meaning it started with one, but it ended with a lot worse. Meaning, first they were given the materials. Here are the bricks. Here's the cement. Build. And again, they were building everything on quicksand. So just as soon as it was built, it was sunk. The verse concludes, And all their labors that they performed... With them, with Farah, what did we say Farah was? Backbreaking labor. Before commenting on this passage, the Gemara explains the phrase hard labor mentioned earlier in the verse. Omar Rabsho Barnachani Omar Barnachmani said in the name of Rabionason, it means that the Egyptians would substitute men's work to be given to the women. And women's work to be given to the men. I think their goal was just to be modern-day equality. Men and women are equal. They're the same. So just, uh, I know this might be unpopular. Men and women are not the same. Okay, can we agree on that? Men and women are not the same. Men and women are different in every way possible. Just like apples and oranges are different, you'll never make an orange into an apple and an apple into an orange. It doesn't make an orange better. It doesn't make an apple better. They're different. Men and women are different. Either way, so they gave, I would love to know, what are the Egyptians up to? That they gave woman labor to men and men labor to women? The Gemara now comments on the last word of the verse. Well, l'man and according to the opinion that says that it was ferach, that it was with a soft mouth, definitely at this point of the game, the Egyptians were giving them crushing labor. What does it mean when it says that the men were given women's labors and women were given men's labors? They would order the men to knead dough and bake bread while the women would have to chop wood and draw water. This made the work more difficult for all, since they were unaccustomed to it. That is, even though the men were used to exerting themselves even harder to perform physical labor, it was difficult for them to do tasks that they had never done before and were unfamiliar with, even though they were less physically taxing, and the women certainly suffered by being forced to perform labor more strenuous than the normal for them. So women suddenly had to schlep and chop wood and draw the water and schlep the water. All right, the Gemara continues now. What does it mean, crushing labor? Since this verse begins by stating that the Egyptians embittered the lives of the Israelites, it cannot be referring to the initial inducements to convince the Israelites to work, which we mentioned previously that they spoke enticingly. They're going to pay you. You're going to get a good benefits package. You're going to get health insurance. You're going to get your 401k, your children's college fund, all of the promises. Based on Rashi's version, the Gemara has now made three comments on this verse. They embittered their lives with hard work by giving men's work to the women and women's work to the men. With mortar and with bricks and with every labor of the field. In the beginning they worked with mortar and bricks and at the end in the fields. And then it says all the labors that they performed with them with, farech, with crush was crushing labor. So the Talmud now continues. The Gemara describes how Pharaoh's first plan to prevent the Israelites from procreating failed. dorash <laughs> Rab Avira. Rab Avira expounded. It says, Bishar, in the merit of the righteous women who were in that generation, it is in their merit that Israel was redeemed from Egypt. The righteous women. It's all in the merit of the righteous women. Why would women want to be equal with men? I don't get it. They're on a pedestal in Judaism. Why would they want to be pulled down? I just don't get it. Okay, either way, it is because Of this, that women are obligated in the commandments of Passover, just as men are. Even though women are generally exempt from positive, time-bound commandments. We mentioned that yesterday in our laws of tzitzis, that women are not obligated in tzitzis. Why? Because it is a time-triggered mitzvah. A positive time-triggered mitzvah. So anytime there's a performative mitzvah that is triggered by time, a woman is not obligated to it. Why is tzitzis or talis triggered by time? Because it's only obligated by day. Because the verse tells us, Uri item oto, and you shall see them, and you don't see things at night. So therefore, it's a time-triggered mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that only applies during the daytime, and women are not obligated to that mitzvah. Okay, that's just an example. Hesach though, women are obligated, just as men are. Why? Because the whole redemption came through the women, came in the merit of the women. This is their, their party. Bisha Shaholchos, Lishov Maim, when the women would go to draw water, Hakodishboruchum, Mizamin lohem Dogim k'tanim The Holy One, blessed is he, the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, would prepare small fish for them in their jugs. Vishavos mechza and when they would draw up the jugs, they would have half full of water and half full of fish. Ubos Vishotvos deros, and they would come and place two pots on top of the oven achas shall chamin, the one filled with hot water and one full with fish. And they would take them to their husbands in the field. And the woman would bathe their husbands and anoint them. And they would feed them and they would give them to drink. And they would join them in conjugal relations between the borders of the fields as it states, as you lie among the borders. So what would happen? They wouldn't let the husband and the wife be together, but they would go feed them. They'd go feed them. They would please them. And then they would have relations. And what would happen? They'd have children. They'd be blessed with babies. And the Gemara notes another reward attributed to the righteous women. As reward for you Lie among the borders for what you've done, Zoch Yusrol Levizas Mitraim, Israel merited to the spoils of Egypt. Shinamar Kanfeyono Nechba Bakesef harutz. This is a verse in Psalms sixty eight fourteen. And what is it what does that mean? For it is stated at the end of the verse the wings of a dove that are coated with silver and her pinions with brilliant gold. The Gemara resumes its narrative of how the Israelites continued to multiply despite the harsh labor. And when the women would become pregnant, they would come to their houses. And when the time would come to give birth, they would go and give birth in the field under the apple tree. As it states, and this is a verse in Song of Songs, under the apple tree I roused you. Then the Holy One, blessed is He, would send from the heavens above an angel who would clean the newborn babies and straighten them. Like the midwife who straightens the child. And in regard to your birth, on the day you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to smooth the skin, nor were you swaddled at all. The angel would gather the babies two round loaves, Echochelshemon ve Echald Vash, one of oil and one of honey, Shinemar veinakeud Vash Misel of a Sheman, as it is stated, he would suckle him with honey from a stone and oil from a flinty rock, the caven Shimakirin, Boheitzraiim, when the Egyptians would discover the babies, Boin Lahorgon, and they would come to kill them, Nasalehemneis Viivloin Bakarka. A miracle would occur and the babies would be swallowed up in the ground. Umevi in al And the Egyptians would bring oxen and plough on top of them. Shinemar gabe On my back the plowers plowed. La after the Egyptians went away, the babies would spring out like grass of the field. Suddenly you had babies growing in the field. As it states, I made you as numerous as the plants of the field. When the children grew up, they would come as flocks upon flocks to their houses. As it states in the same verse, you increase and grew and you came with ornaments upon ornaments. Baade Do not read it as it is written Badi ornaments upon ornaments, Ella Rather read it as though it were, it were written Adorim, flocks upon flocks. and therefore, when the Holy One, blessed is he, revealed himself on the sea, they recognized him first, as it states, this is my God, and I will beautify him. They recognized. Very interestingly, we mentioned this also yesterday in our Halacha podcast, in our Simple Halacha, Living Jewishly podcast, that this verse teaches us, this is my God, and I will beautify him. And when someone does a mitzvah, Do it with the most beautiful way you can. Don't just buy the cheapest menorah. Don't just buy the cheapest, buy the nicest. Because the mitzvah is an expression of your love to the Almighty. And when you show the Almighty your love, your relationship with him grows. What we need to be focused on is our relationship with Hashem. That's our job, our relationship with Hashem. Here the Jewish people were dedicated, were committed, and they were rewarded handsomely for that dedication. Who was the prime demographic that was showing that devotion and dedication? It was the women. They took the risks, they took the danger, and they went with it. They said, we need to continue to procreate. And so they would go find a way to appease their husbands in the fields so that they can have the, these babies. Angels came to help those babies and to clean them and to, and to nurture them. And then when the Egyptians would come and try to kill the babies, they would sink into the ground. The Midrash said it's unbelievable. The Talmud says this. Let me see what the commentaries say about this. Although the Egyptians saw how the babies were miraculously saved, they thought it was accomplished through sorcery, as they would later assume regarding the first several of the ten plagues. They therefore tried to kill the babies by plowing over them. They saw they were miracles. So you wonder, here are these Jewish people. They're just the untouchables. They are so resourceful in the eyes of the Egyptians. That's the way they saw it. They weren't willing to see the hand of Hashem. When someone is blind to it, there's just nothing you can do. Nothing will help them see the light. Tragic. All right, the Gemara now continues. The Gemara returns to its analysis of the section in Exodus, citing Pharaoh's next attempt to prevent the Israelites from procreating. The king of Egypt, this is a verse in the Torah. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, of whom... The name of the first was Shifra, and the name of the second was Puah. The Gemara discusses the relationship of the two midwives. Rav Ushmuel. Rav and Shmuel disagree. Chad Amar Isha one says that it was a woman and her daughter. Amar Kala one says it was a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. Manda Amar Isha the one who says that it was a woman and her daughter, it was Yocheved Miriam. It was Yocheved and her daughter Miriam. And the one who says that it was a daughter in law and her mother in law, that was Yocheved v Elisheva. That was Yocheved and her mother in law, Elisheva. She married Aaron, so it was Aaron's wife, Elisheva. So it was a mother in law and a daughter in law, and and a mother in law and a daughter in law who were doing this. Again, these are two different opinions. Elisheva was thus Yocheved's future daughter-in-law. Because she, I guess she wasn't married yet to, uh, to Aaron. According to this view, it is unlikely that Miriam was one of the midwives since she was only five years old at the time. And it is difficult to say that she was only a helper. The verse must therefore refer to Elisheva, the only other woman of the time named in the Torah, and she was secondary to her future mother-in-law, Yocheved. Since Aaron was only two years old at the time, we must presume that Elisheva was older than he was and could thus serve as a midwife. Okay? So I don't think it's consequential of which one it was, but this is, again, two opinions in the Talmud. Definitely there were two midwives. The question is who? One of them for sure was Yocheved, Moshe's mother, Question is who the other one was. The most common opinion is that it was Miriam Moshe's sister. But over here, the Gemara tells us it could also be that it was the sister in law of Miriam, Aaron's wife, Elisheva. The Gemara supports the first view. Tanya Keman, the Amar Ishobita. It is taught in a braysa, in accordance with the one who says that it was a woman and her daughter, meaning Miriam, the daughter, and Yocheved, the mother. The Tanya, for, for it was taught in the Braisa, Shifra zu Yocheved. The midwife named Shifra mentioned in the verse is actually Yocheved, Moshe's mother. Why was her name called Shifra? Because she straightened the limbs of the child after birth. She straightened. Made sure that the baby was properly, properly resting. Properly, uh, I guess the uh, anatomy of the baby was the structure of the baby was healthy. Davaracher, other another explanation. Shifra sheparu She was called Shifra because Israel increased and multiplied in her days. Pua zomiriam the midwife, this is again the, the brisa, that says the midwife called Pua, in the verse is actually Miriam, Moshe's sister, and why was she called Pua? Because she would coo to the child, she would make sweet sounds to play with the child, and make the child happy. Another explanation, she was called Pua because she would cry out with the divine spirit. And she would say in her prayer, My mother is destined to bear a son who will save Israel. And that was her prayer that she was praying that I guess everything should go well. The next verse records Pharaoh's instruction to the midwives, and that was, And he said, Pharaoh said, When you are assisting the Hebrew women at childbirth, and you see on the stones, if it is a son, you are to kill him. And if it is a daughter, she shall live. The Gemara asks, What are the stones that are referred to here in this verse? The Gemara answers Amar Ravchanan Ravchan said, Simon Godom Masarlehem, Pharaoh gave over to the midwives a great dependable sign of imminent childbirth. Omar Lahani said then Bishaw Shekoraas Laylate, when a woman kneels to give birth, Yer Yerechoseo mitstanenos kaavonim, her thighs become cold as stones. So probably because the circulation probably is limited there, so her thighs will become colder when she's giving birth. That's how you know when she's going to give birth. Pharaoh told these midwives a little hint. Since a woman generally labors for a period of time before giving birth, Pharaoh gave the midwives a sign so they would know when actual childbirth is about to commence. That is, he told the midwives that when the mother's thighs become cold, it was time to remove the child and kill it if it was a male. Another explanation for the term stones, and some say that stones refers to the birthing stool, as it is written, I went down to the house of the potter, and he was doing work over the block, literally the stones, just as this potter, just as he has a thigh here and a thigh there and a block in the middle, so too is a woman who is giving birth. She has a thigh here and a thigh there and a child in the the middle a woman assumes the same position that a potter when she straddles a birthing stool upon giving birth therefore her birth stool is called by the same term as the potter's block according to this version pharaoh was not giving any signs to the midwives but rather he used it's just a term that is used to explain how this childbirth would occur Okay.